I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. This is Bill Camp, the voice of Forensic Files 2 on HLN, and you're listening to Murder in the Rain. On July 1st, 1965, Wilfred Gray, age 30, was met with a warm summer day as he was released from the Oregon State Penitentiary. And as is so often the case, it had not been his first time incarcerated. Born in Brunswick, Georgia in 1935, he moved around a bit and was sent to jail for the first time at age 16. The following year, he was sent to a reformatory facility in New York. At 23, Gray did two and a half years in New York State Prison for burglary, larceny, and assault with a shotgun. He had been at the Oregon State Penitentiary since 1961 for assault and the robbery of a motel in Tigard, Oregon, which is a suburb southwest of Portland. Gray had a friend on the outside, who up until three days previous had been his friend on the inside. Carl Cletus Bowles, also a former tenant at the Oregon State Penitentiary, was released on June 28th and met up with Gray as they had agreed, because they had some work to do. Gray and Bowles' time incarcerated hadn't been one of reform and rehabilitation, but a lengthy stop at a way station on the road to a two-man crime wave. Carl Cletus Bowles, 24 at the time, had been released after a burglary and larceny conviction. With his handsome looks, green eyes, and wavy brown hair, he was the antithesis to Wilfred Gray, who had a, quote, long, dour horse face, was bald-headed, and had heavily tattooed arms. The words Janet Natiza on his left forearm and images of a woman and a dagger on his right. Very vivid. Thank you. I got that in my head. That horse face? <laughs> yep. As a teenager, Carl Cletus, quote, an incorrigible delinquent and native of Lubbock, Texas, lived at the Texas School for Boys, a reform institution, from 1956 to 1957. In 1959, he was charged federally for leaving Texas to avoid prosecution from an armed robbery. And in 1961, he was arrested for car theft in Canyon City, Oregon, where he was charged with larceny and breaking and entering. He served his time in the Oregon State Penitentiary, becoming friends with Wilfred Gray, and soon thereafter, his co-conspirator. The night porter of the Oregon Trails Motel in Tigard was working at the front desk. It was 2 a.m. on Monday, July 5th, 1965, and it was awfully late for new customers to be walking in. But that's why she was there, night portering away. One of the men who approached was, quote, one of the homeliest men she had ever seen in her life. <laughs> and you'd better believe he had a long, dour horse face. <laughs> Sorry, that's so good. <laughs> As the men entered the motel lobby from the otherwise deserted parking lot out front, they pulled firearms and trained them on her and her husband, who was also working late. The man was accosted by Bowles, who beat him into submission before tying him up and emptying the register of the $28 within. At the same time, Wilfred Gray dragged the woman into an adjacent room, beating and raping the 58-year-old. This remained unnoticed by the motel's guests as its room spread out from the front office, meaning she was distant from any help. Apologizing throughout the assault, Gray repeated, quote, I'm sorry to force you to do this, but I haven't had a woman in two years. While emptying the register... Carl Cletus acted as the lookout for Wilfred Gray's second run at this motel, the one he'd been in prison the last several years for robbing. Twelve or so hours after the motel robbery, rape, and assault, Tuesday afternoon, July 6th, Gray and Bowles entered a First National Bank branch of Portland through separate entrances. Bowles stayed by the door, covering it and the 25 customers inside with a shotgun, while Gray, brandishing a Luger-type pistol, ordered several of the bank's 15 employees to put cash into the plastic bag he had provided. Nobody moved. Nobody tried to be a hero, and a couple of minutes later, Gray and Bowles were gone. 
Their take was nearly $14,000, which in today's currency would be a little over $120,000. The pair then headed south, making a brief stop in Salem, which is about an hour away from Portland. Leo Bowers, a salesman at Eisner Motor Company, a used car lot, identified a photo of Wilfred Gray as one of the two men who had purchased a red 1959 Triumph from him at nine that evening. Gray and Bowles had walked the lot a couple hours earlier, stating that the sports car was, quote, a little more than they could go before leaving. However, they did return, paying 900 in cash for the car, as well as a few dollars for its license and title fees. And it is frightening to consider the mindset of two people wanted for multiple major felonies purchasing a flashy ride like that. A truly ride and die attitude. That night in Eugene, Oregon, two hours from Portland, 33-year-old Deputy Carlton E. Smith, a recent hire of the Lane County Sheriff's Office, was on his first night shift. It was a solo patrolo, resulting from a staffing shortage, and it was due to end in an hour. Smith had previously been a member of the Springfield Police Department, and before that, an Alaska Highway Patrolman. At 11.20 p.m., Smith pulled a vehicle over, conducting a routine check, and he had enough time to give the description and license plate of the car before he was ambushed. After taking a blast in the back from a shotgun, the father of six was shot six times with a pistol. He then somehow managed to crawl back to his car's driver's side, radioing dispatch that he was down, which were his final words. Fifteen minutes later, a passing motorist found Smith's body, his face and torso riddled with bullet holes, slumped beside his patrol car, the asphalt scattered with empty 9mm shell casings and a fired shotgun shell. The motorist used the unit's radio to call in the scene's location and Deputy Carlton Smith's status as deceased. Responding units noted that, in addition to his life, the fugitives had also taken the man's service revolver. At midnight, Gray and Bowles were spotted in the Triumph, and a high-speed chase ensued. Losing the sheriffs briefly, the men ditched the car and fled into the night. At 2 a.m., this is now the early morning of July 7th, and three blocks from Deputy Smith's deadly encounter with Gray and Bowles, Mrs. Shirley Corbin, 33, was up making a midnight snack with her 12-year-old son Clinton when there was a hard knock at their back kitchen door. The boy answered before Shirley could stop him. It was Carl Cletus Bowles, an old horse face of course face, <laughs> Wilfred Gray. They first asked to use the phone, claiming there was an emergency, then forced their way inside when Shirley Corbin refused them, holding them at gunpoint and informing her that they had just murdered a police officer and had to get away immediately. There were four other children in the house asleep. Bowles and Gray initially discussed taking all of the children with them, with Gray finally making the decision that, quote, one kid's enough. It will keep the cops from shooting at us if they should spot us. A flock of kids would be a mess. At gunpoint, they then forced Shirley and young Clinton into the family's 1964 Thunderbird and began the next leg of their spree. The remaining children had all slept through the home invasion and abduction, with one of the left-behind Corbin girls calling police when they woke up in a motherless home. The blue and white Thunderbird rumbled past the Liebberg Dam on the route Shirley had directed Gray and Bowles to take after they had asked for directions to Idaho. It was late, and the car remained unseen by any and all who worked there overnight, including her husband. It was the only move Shirley had, and it was a good one, but it had been played to no result, and her heart sank as the dam faded into the distance. At dawn, after the authorities had been made aware of the kidnapping, a posse of 100 law enforcement officers searched the rural area surrounding the Corbin's home using tracking dogs, while deputies in small aircraft scanned the orchards, fields, and residences that populated the landscape. Their search bore no fruit, though, as the robber, rapist, kidnappers already had a several-hour lead on them. 
The fugitives learned via radio broadcast that police knew of Deputy Smith's killing and that the Triumph had been found abandoned by authorities. They knew the Thunderbird was soon to be red hot and that they needed to ditch it immediately. Mr. and Mrs. Uldus Reekstens of Renton, Washington, their son Janice, 14, and his friend Zanis. No. <laughs> yes. No. <laughs> yeah, Janice and Zanis. The most uncommon names ever for two little boys, and they happen to be best friends. <laughs> That's kind of cute. We're on a road trip, driving a pickup truck with an attached camper high in the Cascade Mountains of Oregon. Natives of Latvia, a portion of their previous week's itinerary had involved traveling to and then performing at a Latvian song festival. They were soon to head back home and had parked along the side of the road for a rest when they were hijacked. Gray and Bull's flight had taken them high into the Cascade Mountains, in an area called Santiam Pass, and it was 1 a.m. when they quietly pulled over and parked behind the Reekston's camper. A knock on its side window startled the family awake, and from outside they heard a man exclaim, quote, We're lost. Let us in, or I'll break the window. Uldis Reekston's turned on the camper's exterior light and unlatched the door. Bowles and Gray, both armed, pushed Shirley and Clinton Corbin inside while they remained in the doorway, from which they explained their new plan to their ever-expanding stable of hostages. They needed to cross the border into California, and they now needed the Reekstons and their truck to do so. Before they embarked, Gray drove the Thunderbird into a mud bank so as to hide it from the view of passing motorists. While waiting for him to return, Carl Cletus asked Mr. Reekstons if he could, quote, drive this heap like that, pointing to the man's empty right sleeve. Uldis answered in the affirmative, and they were soon on their way. At the time, a civil engineer in Washington, during World War II, Uldis Reekstens had been conscripted to fight for the Germans against the Russians and lost his arm in the process. Mr. Reekstens would drive the pickup with Carl Cletus covering him from the front seat, while Gray would ride in the attached camper with their hostages. As they and their captors headed south toward California, Carl Cletus apologized for ruining the family's vacation. A quote from a retrospective article on the case, Reekstens drove steadily, carefully, just a man taking his family and friends on holiday, valiant, in a desperate way. They took Route 97, south to the California border, watching law enforcement aircraft fly low over the highway the entire time, searching for the long-since-abandoned Thunderbird and any sign of Bowles, Gray, or Shirley and Clinton Corbin. There was an intercom set up between the truck cab and camper, and during this time the hostages overheard Bowles exclaim, quote, they think we got the Thunderbird. They think we're going north. Ha ha! Unquote. <laughs> Nearing an agricultural inspection station at the California border, Carl Cletus used the intercom to ask Wolford if he was ready. He replied, quote, Yep, I know what to do. So do these folks. Uldis stopped the truck under the shade of the station's wooden canopy roof. When the uniformed inspector stepped from his booth to ask if they were carrying any fruits or vegetables, Uldis, weary from the strain they were under, responded too quickly and a bit harshly to the man, saying, quote, No, no, while Carl Cletus grinned and said they had just a couple of kids to sleep back in the camper. The inspector gave them an okay and waved them through. The group then traversed California for 18 hours, pulling over only for sandwiches and coffee, fuel, and restroom breaks. During these stops, the hostages whispered among themselves, and Shirley Corbin informed the other hostages that they needed to cooperate with their captors, who had robbed a bank and murdered a deputy. Gray and Bowles were each carrying shotguns, and the Reekston's son, Janice, 
noted that they also had pistols. Gray had one, and Bowles had two. The hostages found no opportunities to attempt an escape, fearing they would be shot. In the aftermath, Shirley Corbin was quoted saying, if we had tried, they would have plugged somebody. Late into the night of Wednesday, July 7th, with Uldis Rickstins piloting the truck and camper aimlessly through downtown Sacramento, Gray and Bowles suddenly asked to be let out. The hostages were instructed to drive two hours out of town before reporting their location, and then the pair simply walked away from the camper and into the night. Finally free, though terrified of encountering Gray and Bowles again, the group took off in the truck. They were afraid to call the police, so they headed north, back to Oregon. But they only made it 14 miles before they had to stop. The previous 24 hours had taken a toll, so the group checked into a motel in Woodland, California. At 9.15 p.m., Shirley Corbin called her home, where police took the call. She informed them that she and her son were unharmed and that the hostages were alive and safe. At that point, did anyone know about the family in the camper even being in danger? I don't know when exactly, but by the time that they got to that motel and called the police, the car that, the other car that they had been in, the Thunderbird, oh. uh, had been found in the mud bank. They, they, the authorities found it abandoned. So they knew that they were in something that else. That they had switched out. Oh, yeah. okay. But they gotcha. didn't know what. And that's why like the whole time they were, I mean, they were watching the police look for them. Right. And having, from what I was reading in these articles, like a great time watching that. Right. <laughs> really I'm enjoyed sure. that. Yeah. They were questioned at the motel by police, after which they all then climbed back into the truck and made the trek back to Eugene. 12-year-old Zanis Boz, former hostage and friend of the Riegston's son, was quite thrilled by the ordeal, and in interviews had to be reminded to sound less excited. <laughs> Mrs. Riegston's, whose first name is never mentioned, recalling the event said, quote, I didn't want to park on the roadside in the first place, but we were all tired, and I didn't say anything. And it was lucky, too, that their saga wrapped up as quickly as it had, because their vacation was truly over. Mr. Reekstons had to clock in for work at Boeing the following day. And I'm sure he did, because he's like, that was nothing. I lost my arm in World War II. Yeah, he, he was like, I have to go to work. He, it was like, in quotes, in interviews, he was like, like kind of like, let's wrap it up. Still in Sacramento, in the wee early hours of Thursday, July 8th, Wolford Gray and Carl Cletus Bowles were on foot, sprinting through fields and jumping over back fences, when they stumbled onto a ranch-style house at 1400 Sherwood Avenue. It was the residence of the champions, Marie and Hale, as well as their 19-month-old Catherine, who had recently recovered from an illness and blood transfusion. Gray and Bowles entered the home through an unlocked back door at 3 a.m. and roused the family from sleep by switching on the lights. Baby Catherine remained asleep as the home invasion began, but she became fussy and woke up crying, forcing the champions to bring her along. Similar to the abduction of the Corbins and Eugene, Gray and Bowles left the champion's 10-year-old son, Tommy, behind. He had been on the back porch, having a sleepover with a friend, and woke to a parentless home. The gun-wielding pair loaded Marie, Hale, and baby Catherine into the family's green 1962 Ford Galaxy. Five hours later, a phone call to police by Tommy Champion caused a massive response from law enforcement. You see, the ex-cons hadn't kidnapped any old family. Hale Champion was a prominent person a former San Francisco Chronicle reporter who currently held the position of finance director for the state of California, as well as being personal friends with the current California governor, Edmund Brown, known as Pat, who also happened to be baby Catherine's godfather. They picked the wrong house. They sure did. Unknown to Gray and Bowles, 
The net around them had widened exponentially with the discovery of this new kidnapping and was now drawing close. The three men took turns driving, Hale, then Wilford, then Carl Cletus. They were heading northeast through the El Dorado National Forest toward Nevada, and according to Marie Champion, quote, they wanted to make sure she, Katie, had enough milk and enough food. They even wanted to buy Hale's favorite brand of cigars, unquote. At one point, Gray was driving 90 miles an hour while sucking on a bottle of whiskey. Marie mentioned to him that his drinking worried her, so he obligingly rolled down his window and tossed the bottle out. That morning, still July 8th, Bowles even played with the baby for a time, slipping cigar bands over Katie's outstretched fingers, while Gray bought supplies from a store in Carson City, returning with clothes including cowboy hats for he and Bowles, food, milk for the baby, razors, and a 30-30 rifle. Hale Champion was alarmed to see a man he knew to be a violent ex-convict carrying a lever-action Winchester and a box of shells. That should have been impossible, but as he found out later, the store clerk hadn't asked for ID, and he filled out no sales slip or receipt because they were not required by Nevada state law. The clerk also thought it odd for someone to be buying a large rifle outside of deer hunting season, though he chose to ask Ray nothing. By this point, there were all-points bulletins all over the western United States and on the radio identifying Gray and Bowles. That gun clerk was one lazy shithead. Fired. Yeah. I find it hard to believe that they came in and had, like, a mellow energy. Yeah. They weren't, like, sweating a little bit. (laughs) Just picking out beef jerky. I know it's not uh, hunting season. I just uh, need that big rifle. No question. Oh, you're not going to ask any? Okay, great. According to Hale Champion... Acquiring the first rifle seemed to change Bowles and Gray's plan. Where at first they had spoken of releasing the hostages in a deserted area, stealing another car, and continuing their flight across Nevada, they now wanted to double back and hide in the High Sierras, the mountain range they had just crossed. But to do so successfully, they believed more firepower was necessary. Gray, Bowles, and their hostages then headed south to nearby Minden, Nevada, where Gray purchased another Winchester rifle this time a 30-30 carbine repeater, and another box of shells. Both rifles appear similar, with the major difference between the two being that one you load down a pipe parallel to the barrel, and the other takes ammo from a box magazine. So it's just the, the second rifle they got is just much easier to load and reload and fire on police. <laughs> Faster. Yes. They were able to acquire two high-powered rifles within 30 minutes, leaving zero record of the purchases in their wake. Hale was stunned. Just stunned. The niceties of playing with the baby and buying cigars for Hale aside, they did repeatedly tell the group, quote, we're already going to burn for this, so it doesn't matter what happens, unquote. As Bowles and Gray changed clothes at a campsite along the highway, Hale watched Bowles give Gray, quote, a significant look, then point to the center of his forehead, saying, quote, remember, right there. Hale believed they were concerned with humanely killing the hostages, if it came to that. Heading southeast when one of the galaxy's tires blew out in the desert, Hale was made to put on the spare while Bowles and Gray did some target shooting. He could see that Bowles was a very good shot, far better than Gray, and effortlessly so. It was something Gray had to concede, before adding that he was as good a shot as he had to be, as he only concerned himself with being able to hit targets the size of a person. Observing Bowles in the way he handled himself with a firearm, Hale Champion noted that the man's proficiency seemed to be a defining component of his personality. 
that of a cunning quick-draw, a slick rogue, a man with nothing to lose. Believing they would be better able to fend off police now that they had the rifles, Gray said to Hale, quote, I think we are going to get it, but now we can take a lot of fuzz with us, unquote. You guys know what fuzz is? Police, right? That's right. The coppers, the 5-0, the Adam 12s. At 7.30 that evening, the Ford Galaxy pulled into Ide's service station in the teeny tiny town of Looning, Nevada, needing a refuel. The station attendant, who was also a police constable, recognized the vehicle and its passengers, as that info had been blasted across the radio and newspapers of late. From inside, Wilfred Gray watched the man recognize the car, then its occupants. He then watched the man running away from them and toward a telephone, where he called the teeny-tiny police station. Law enforcement was quickly on their tail, but Gray and Bowles had already hightailed it out of looning in the galaxy. They were on the move again, driving south through Mina, where they stopped at an auto shop to ask for directions, before going through Coaldale, then heading east toward Chinopa, Nevada. Go Phoenixes! For your mind's eye, we are now geographically located halfway between Reno and Las Vegas. It is the dead-ass middle of nowhere. Go Phoenixes! Four miles outside of Tonopah, a set of headlights appeared on the empty highway behind the galaxy. The car sped up and passed them. It was a Nevada Highway Patrol car. Gray and Bowles were now sure they were headed for a trap. Gray, who was driving, shut their lights off to obscure their location, but they hit a curve and a dip, which popped one of the tires, hurtling the car back and forth across the road before it finally came to a stop. The champions were ordered out of the car and forced to hide with Gray and Bowles in the brush alongside the road. Shortly, a vehicle rolled up and stopped at their location. It was the same highway patrol car. Nye County Sheriff Deputy Thomas Woolmath, also on Solo Patrolo, climbed out and was bushwhacked as he moved to inspect the empty Ford. Wilmath dove for cover behind his vehicle when the shots rang out. Putting a pistol to Marie Champion's head and using her as a human shield, Gray and Bowles quickly overtook the deputy and commandeered his patrol car. The champions were then, quote, gun-ushered to the patrol car. Deputy Wilmath was forced into the vehicle as well, where he was made to sit in the back seat between Bowles and Hale Champion, while Wilford Gray drove and Marie, holding the baby, rode shotgun. Bowles and Gray began communicating with police via the car's radio unit, demanding food and ammunition, and promising that they would kill the Champion family if police attempted to approach them. A little over an hour later, Gray pulled into a gas station adjacent to a club in Tonopah called the Tonopah Club that was a combination restaurant, bar, casino, and bowling alley to get sandwiches and coffee for the group, as well as milk, for teeny tiny baby Catherine. Jumpy after days without sleep and anxious from a delay in the club's kitchen, while a terrified gas station attendant filled the galaxy's tank, Bowles and Gray began firing into the building. Inside the Tonopa Club, panic ensued. As patrons and employees alike sought either cover or escape, club owner Benny Ball tossed his wife a shotgun, shouting for her to hide in their shared office while running upstairs to cover the chaos with a rifle from higher ground. As this was happening, a 52-year-old car dealer named Ralph Marks, who had become enraged when Bowles and Gray shot holes into the building's front facade, ran outside, pulled out a gun that, quote, belonged to the club, and, be <laughs> and fired back, hitting Hale Champion in the leg. Refueled but lacking a bag of sandwiches, Bowles and Gray sped off in the patrol car, with the Champion still their captives. As Gray whipped the car around and took off in the same direction they had just come, either he or Bowles screamed into the radio mic, quote, I don't know why you people shot at us. If you want to kill us, go ahead. And now let's say goodbye 
because thus ends Deputy Thomas Wilmath's participation in this story. I assume he stayed in the club until his patrol car drove away and the coast was clear. There was no word on whether or not he ever got those sandwiches. Go Phoenixes. Gray informed the police dispatch that Hale was shot, just a nick in the leg, and that they would be dumping him off at a deserted gas station a few miles outside of Tonopa. Hale protested, saying he was not badly hurt and wanted to stay with Marie and Catherine, but Bowles ordered him out, and Hale had to watch his wife and child disappear down the road. That would be excruciating. And, I mean, just and knowing what kind of men they are. Mm-hmm. I don't think I could get out of the car. I'd be like, you'd have to kill me. Yeah. If anyone, you know, friend, family, is still stuck with them, and you know that they are running at a 10 yeah. of mania and choice-making, it's that would be horrific. Yeah, yep. He tried. Mm. Mm. Marie Champion had been riding with Carl Cletus's gun to her head since they had escaped to Nopa. A procession of cop cars then pursued the criminals for more than an hour. At one point, Bowles, with a cowboy hat perched on his head and a pistol tucked in his waistband, strolled into the Coaldale Inn in Coaldale, where, unknown to him, police had already taken position in the brush behind the building. Bowles asked if there were, quote, any cops around. The bartender, 52-year-old Jimmy Cook, lied with a simple, nope, and continued rolling a cigarette while Bowles shopped. And I have to imagine that Jimmy was a grizzled old bastard who had gotten too old for this shit, but not too old to take it. Carl Cletus purchased milk for the baby, canned sardines, a pound of boiled ham, yuck, bread, a carton of cigarettes, and two-fifths of whiskey. Healthy. Mm-hmm. He then shoved $250 into Jimmy's hand, saying, quote, I'll never live to spend it. Police chose not to attempt to capture as they knew he was armed and that he didn't want to risk Jimmy Cook's grizzled hide. They allowed him to re-enter the car and resume the pursuit. In Basalt, 30 miles west of Coaldale, Bowles radioed police to inform them that he and Gray would release Mrs. Champion and the baby in Mount Montgomery, a few miles outside of Basalt, but only after they took a side trip. The men then drove north back to Mina and forced their way into the Nevada meat market and grocery. Again, they were looking for ammunition, though they had already been informed that no store in Mina sold the type of ammo they were looking for. Gray and Bowles then headed back south toward Mount Montgomery, and on the way, they radioed police one last time to make a deal. Quote, We'll leave the woman and kid in the car if you'll give us half an hour on foot before anyone comes around. Police agreed. Bowles and Gray stopped the car, killed the engine, and as they exited, Bowles tossed Marie Champion $900 and said, quote, You don't need to tell the old man you got it. Go out. Have a ball. I'm not going to need it. Unquote. What a nice guy. Thoughtful. The police, who had no intention of complying with the pair, gave chase as soon as they were clear of the car. They were tracked and arrested almost immediately and without incident at a border inspection station near teeny tiny Benton, California, which now features the acute teeny tiny ghost town. It was just before dawn on July 9th, over 900 miles and a little over four days since their three-state rampage began, with one life taken and countless others forever changed. The champions were reunited after the arrests of Bowles and Gray. Hales received only bandages for his wound and had to be forced to go to the hospital after rejoining his wife and daughter. Before being transported to the hospital, though, the champions described Wilfred Gray and Carl Cletus Bowles to reporters as, quote, pathetic human beings. And from an article covering the manhunt, quote, nobody knows why it ended quietly. In Sacramento, Gray and Bowles were arraigned in federal court on charges of robbery, kidnapping, and murder where they both pleaded innocent. 
Sacramento County District Attorney John M. Price added a complaint to their charges under California's Little Lindbergh Law for the kidnapping of the champions and their baby. And this carried the possibility of a gas chamber death sentence. In Oregon, which had jurisdiction over the case, both Gray and Bowles were sentenced to life in prison for the murder of Deputy Carlton Smith. These would have been death sentences, but Oregon had voted out the death penalty in the previous year of 1964. Bowles first served seven years at the McNeil Island facility in Washington, which closed in 2011, and held the title of the Northwest's oldest prison facility and that of the last island-based prison in the United States. And he was there serving his federal charges, uh, serving time for the federal kidnapping charges. After those seven years, at age 31, he was transferred to the Oregon State Penitentiary to serve life for that murder of Deputy Smith. It was his home away from home. And according to sentencing judge Edwin Allen, Bowles was never to be considered for parole. This concludes the first of two chapters on the saga of Carl Cletus Bowles. Next week, we're making a time jump to 1974, when a lack of oversight, Carl Cletus Bowles' dangerous charm, and a prison warden who couldn't see the forest for the trees collided, resulting in a crime spree that could have easily been avoided. I got some vibes that very similar to the Weyerhaeuser kidnapping. You know, the Lindbergh law comes into play, just the long chase, the random run-ins. Yeah. It's pretty cool. I like, I mean, not pretty cool for the people in it. But right. It's an interesting type of case. It is fascinating because you don't very often hear of these where it's just, all I can think of is like Grand Theft Auto and getting to five stars mm-hmm. and like, let's just go until we can't go anymore. And there are real... Really, when you think about it, there aren't that many older cases so well documented. Yeah. Right? Where you can get so many quotes. I'm guessing you went through a lot of news articles for this one. Holy moly, yeah. <laughs> it's not just, oh, they're running from the cops. It's like they murdered a cop. And kidnapped. They raped the woman at the hotel. An entire family kidnapped. Three families. That's insane. Like, the bank robbery. Robbed a bank. It's just, you know, we hear of these. You did a case a while back. Uh, with the neo-Nazi guy. Oh, uh-huh. And they went on that rampage. Mm-hmm. And that's what it is. It's like a freaking rampage where it's like, yeah. well, it doesn't matter anyway. When I get caught, I'm going to die. So I'm just yeah. going to do as much as I can. I actually had that thought when I was rereading the case this morning is that they spent all of their youth, all of their formative years there. They had no reason to mm-hmm. believe they would ever not spend time in prison for yeah. anything they ever did. Well, and I think that's part of the problem with these pe- with some of these people is they don't see another option. I might as well go have fun before I have to go back again. Right. I did have a question, Josh, in the story. Yes. There, towards the end, you say when they go to that last hotel and the cops are hiding in the brush around it. Oh, yeah, the Coaldale, yeah, the Coaldale Inn. Yeah. So... Why didn't they pounce on them? That Were they just watching them at that point? They were, and I think they were afraid that he would... I mean, they knew that he had a gun like in his waistband and that there was oh, someone inside the building. The and champions. they had the hostages, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. And the host- yeah, so that I think if Wilford Gray heard shots from inside that bar, he probably would have killed them. Yeah. I think. I mean, they, they, they really... As human as they were with them, they also really had no compulsion about killing them. That's another thing I had. It's so fascinating and creepy and bizarre that everything is... Um, in the moment that they're doing these horrible things, it's I'm sorry, I'm raping you. I need to get milk for this baby. It's like there's a little bit of logic to it, and they struggle with their humanity. Like, yeah. okay, if I'm gonna kill him, I'm gonna do it humanely, but I'm gonna try to avoid it. Yeah, but I will if I have to. I really don't want. And they to. know they will if they have yeah. to. Yeah, there's gonna be no hesitation. Yeah, it's a very interesting 
way to look at someone's brain and, and think. But then I think it goes hand in hand with spending your whole life in prison. Exactly. I was going to say, go back to his point of them being in prison for so long. It's like, yeah, you're still a human and you don't want to be doing this thing, but but you know it's you're going to do it know. to survive. Yeah, right? and if you've been paired up with this other buddy of yours and that's all you guys talk about. I didn't think about this either, but they I mean, they don't they didn't say this in any of the articles I read, but I imagine they were like maybe best friends. Yeah. Maybe very very close and yeah. I think too the fact that they look so different, I would imagine that Wilfred Gray would be sort of attracted to someone like Bowles who is like everything handsome. he wants, yeah, yeah. Mm. smooth talker, good looking, has a full head of hair. You know, you know people like that where they just latch onto each other yeah. because of that. One admires the other. Yeah, yeah. Uh, also, you know, who knows that it might be dependency too. Like I, I can only get through this with this person. Hmm. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see also after that because this was in the '60s to see if the California governor or Nevada governor or if they worked together, if there were any changes in gun policy because his friend was affected by because it. Because of this? Uh-huh. Mm. To say, hey, guy in Nevada, my friend was almost murdered because your people are just handing out guns all willy-nilly. So I wonder if there was any kind of... There is actually a portion in the, in part two <gasps> um, where one of the one of the um, participants in the, in, in the first part speaks on gun control at an actual oh, an actual hearing and it's fascinating and the quotes this person have has are just like choice <laughs> and it's just crazy it's the same thing it was like that was like 50 years ago yeah same things are happening now oh yeah same conversation because we're His- still coming for the guns history repeats right yep I, th- I think because we go so extreme with our stories sometimes that you're like oh it's a car chase okay whatever you know but it's like imagining those families and like watching people plan how to murder you while you're holding your baby well put yourself in their position too you know they've recognized these people will kill you Uh if they need to and you're just trying to not upset them Mm -hmm. try to be try to keep the baby quiet Uh oh it's hungry but he's gonna go buy it some milk i mean that and whatever kind of mood they're in and who knows uh I know you didn't mention anything about drugs, but you'd never know that in that kind of situation. Even if they're in prison, that doesn't matter. They still have access. So it's like, are these guys on something? Is there any logic here? Yeah. Drinking and driving. Oh, my God. You're driving the car while drinking. That would be horrifying. And I'm just just taking a stab in the dark that they may have had alcohol. But yeah. Oh, no. There was was one point where he was driving once he had the champions that he was drinking. And she's like, could you not? drink while driving my family my baby (laughs) who's loose in my arms because we don't even worry about car seats Ah, i'm sure they didn't have seat belts on either they're all just loose in that they probably didn't even have seat belts in the car wait what year is it i forgot 60 oh 65 they may or may not have but just lap belts lap belts at best yeah oh i love too when criminals when at the end of their rope of what they can get away with are like okay cops We'll turn ourselves in, but you have to like close your eyes and count to a hundred first before you come for like they have no obligation to comply with yeah, you. Like, <laughs> like they... you are a criminal who is on a spree. We're not gonna give you a head start, sorry. Yeah, I wonder if that's their actual thinking or if it's just like the lack of sleep. Right. The thinking that, that would that, that would be a square deal and that they could Yeah, or if trust their brains the just think like I've had control for four days straight of every person in my path. Oh, I think they're invincible. I guess yeah. that's true. That Yeah, they think that just because they're loose that they are yeah. controlling the situation. Well, and then yeah. add drugs and alcohol. Say they do have their hands on something. You're hyping each other up. 
uh, well, up all the adrenaline hours. of yeah. like, well, we've got all this money, but also the cops are going to kill us any yeah. minute. Like, we have nothing to lose. Balls to the wall. How is this not a movie yet? I know, especially oh, when there's a second part coming. I'm excited to jump ahead <laughs> a few years and see what happens. It's bonkers. I can't wait to hear how the justice system failed again because I'm pretty <laughs> sure that's where it's going. Usually, how, especially in Oregon. <laughs> I in bet the he 60s did. And 70s. I bet he didn't go on a spree in prison. So when are we going to hear part two? We're going to disco dance into that episode next week. Ooh, Ooh, back back to, to back. Born in Brunswick, Georgia. We're Georgia. Where the fuck is that? Georgia. <laughs> next to Louisiana. Oh, I know that place. <laughs> Which is a suburb southwest of Portland. God. Jesus. I heard nothing wrong with that. What's going on? I have, I have my mouth felt a little wet. Oh, I, <laughs> Carl Cletus Bowles, 24 at the time, had been. <laughs> we heard that. <laughs> little, little Cletus coming to play. <laughs> oh. Is Cletus an upstairs jumbie? <laughs> what the fuck? What did I miss inside jumbie? What a weird statement. <laughs> oh, I'm glad it's Cletus. Uh, Jumpy is your tummy. I think we had told you we watched this horrible movie and the whole thing was that like this possessed old man baby wanted to like, the ghost wanted to be reborn. Through his like great granddaughter or something like that. Yeah, and that's so the whole 20 minutes that we could get through, they're like, Jumpy wants to be born. And so that's our cue for like, we're going to have diarrhea. (laughs) 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 I'll be like, can you turn on the TV because Jumpy wants to be born? So we need some sound. (laughs) Oh my God, I love that. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe a Cletus is an upstairs Jumpy. (laughs) They call that a buildup. Yeah, they do. (laughs) I'm waiting. I'm waiting on those ellipses. Or space dongs. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) To that, I say nay. (laughs) And I say, hey. (laughs) Horse face dong. Yeah, not length. Not horse length. Horse face. (laughs) Don't want no horse face dong. Please illustrate that for us. Oh my God, I'm doodling right now. Thank you. (laughs) Make sure it has the big old square horse teeth on it. Right where the pee with hole would sug- be? With a sugar cube. <laughs> oh, it skeets sugar cubes. <laughs> <laughs> My God. Never thought I'd say that again. <laughs> Entered a first national bank branch of Portland through separate entrances. <clears throat> and he took out a small business loan and opened a bakery. <laughs> They've been doing great ever They're since. They're just happy together. Totally reformed. Only catches he needed a co-signer. Oh yeah, I was thinking more of like your like a portrait style where it's like looking at the camera. Yeah, that's. What but I, was, I do like that. Oh. That's a profile. Can you do one of those yeah, as well. Falls. Like you want it face first. Yeah, face first, like, like hanging low, sweet chariot. Okay. Yeah, like you're also, like I'm you're not looking an artist, though. like you're looking at a crotch straight I on. I asked my mom to draw it. She's very good oh, at drawing horses. And she loves horses. <laughs> How she feel about dongs? Mm-hmm. I, I'm. She knows her way around them. <laughs> I know that. <laughs> That's one thing I know about my mother. She doesn't get lost, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> it's not her first day walking through the woods. Hey. <laughs> not her first. Everything I know I learned from my mother. <laughs> it's not her, her first horse face to dong. <laughs> I mean, she was into the 70s. She's you know a horse I mean. girl. Oh, that's rad. Good for her. That was disco snapping. Yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, ex- yes. <laughs> <laughs> nice shaft. When whoever illustrates it does that for real, I would like it to be like a 
<laughs> sort of like a spotted horse. <laughs> Some brown and white. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Little... I want mine to be midnight black. Oh. <laughs> With a little stallion. white star right on the forehead. <gasps> oh. <laughs> we start a whole line of trading cards of horse tongs. <laughs> horse face tongs? I don't want people to get confused. Oh, yes. I apologize. I apologize. <laughs> yeah, one of them is bestiality. The other one is just erotic fantasy. <laughs> Into the family's 1964 third third bird. Classic, beautiful. Mm. Let's take a deep old breath. You're sounding great, by the Thank way. Thank you, Kristen. Too. Or Merry Christmas, like the girl I grew up with. Fuck. She went by MC. Scat Cat. <laughs> yep. How'd you know? Opposites attract. That's true. What? <clears throat> Quiet. <laughs> Sacramento, Sacramento. I'm sorry. You did it again. Shut up! Shut up! Murder in the Rain is produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney and Alicia Holland. Artwork by Jamie Costa. Music by Kai Pfeiffer at kyfifer.com. Check out our website, murderintherain.com, for additional information on all cases, a fun interactive map, and be sure to subscribe so you can receive our newsletter. Check out the Mad Props page for coupon codes from some of our sponsors. We love your reviews and seeing them on all streaming platforms, especially iTunes. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And suck my balls. (laughs) Please put that in. (laughs) 